it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Monday, August 8th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. You're listening to The Guy Benson Show, a new broadcast week here. Thank you so much for tuning in. Every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern, that's the show. If you can't listen as we air live, there's a backup plan. It's a good one. It's the podcast, free, on demand, every day, GuyBensonShow.com. That's GuyBensonShow.com or FoxNewsPodcast.com for the podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show on Twitter and on Instagram. You can watch, for example, if you missed it, my appearance this morning on America's Newsroom with Bill Hemmer and Dana Perino. We have that clipped for you, and you can check that out on social media at Guy Benson Show. Here's the lineup today. Governor Brian Kemp of Georgia. Republican, the incumbent, he's going to be here an hour from now talking about his reelection campaign and the way things are looking in Georgia. In our next hour, Brian Riedel will be here, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. He also spent years on Capitol Hill as a budget expert and wonk. He knows these numbers backwards and forwards. He's a credible source, and we are going to ask him to really go through with a fine-tooth comb This bill that the Democrats pass out of the Senate, which we will address a little bit ourselves here in a moment. In our final hour, Howie Kurtz of Media Buzz, the in-house media critic here at Fox News, looking forward to chatting with him about a number of different issues. But as I just referenced a moment ago, let's get things started and rolling with a Fox News alert. If you missed it yesterday, after a marathon session of amendment votes, the U.S. Senate passed the Democrats' so-called Inflation Reduction Act, which is nothing of the sort. In fact, we've got some sound of Bernie Sanders, of all people, on the Senate floor over the weekend saying, yeah, it really isn't going to do anything on inflation, even though that's what we called the bill. Even Bernie's not buying that. But with Americans getting crushed by inflation, they just decided, let's put that word, that term, into the bill name. And then we can attack Republicans for being against it, even if it's going to do nothing of the sort. And in fact, based on some nonpartisan estimates, it could increase inflation in the near term. So they're going to spend a bunch of money during inflation, new government spending. They are also going to raise taxes during a recession. It's crazy. But on a party line vote, 50-50 plus one, the tiebreaker going to Vice President Kamala Harris, this $750 billion bill went through. And I told you it was going to happen. As soon as Manchin said, all right, we've got a plan, no matter how bad the plan is, no matter how faulty his arguments have been, and we have spent a lot of time on this show over the last week or so rebutting robustly the things that he was saying. And when he's been challenged by some of these points, 
face-to-face in interviews. He just has nothing in response. He's sort of like, oh, well, shucks, shrug shoulders. We'll have to agree to disagree. That's his position. Once they had him, and he apparently believed or was willing to say that he believed these talking points, that was game over. There's a, oh, the progressives might not sign on to it. Nonsense. Of course they would. Oh, Kirsten Cinema. What about her? These are all Democrats. She is a much more progressive Democrat, much more liberal than Manchin is. My prediction with her was she would extract some sort of pound of flesh. She would get some little tweak to the bill that she could call a win for herself, and then she'd be on board. That is exactly what happened. You had some members from New Jersey and northeastern states saying, if we don't get this salt deduction changed on taxes to benefit our rich constituents in blue states, remember this is something the Democrats are really committed to, this tax loophole, tax deduction for the rich, Blue state millionaires, it's like one of their big issues. They said, if we don't get that in this bill, there's no deal. And they drew a line in the sand. And then they have spent the last few days just covering up the line in the sand. Oh, that was never there. And so, no, no, what do we say that? That's not really what we meant. So this was as predictable as the sun rising in the east. The Democrats, having been frustrated and foiled... At every turn now on a big spending bill since their last one, two billion, or excuse me, almost two trillion dollars, that really fueled and put rocket fuel into this inflation bomb. They've been frustrated ever since that they couldn't do more using this reconciliation tool in the Senate, which is a simple majority. They've been itching to do it. The raison d'etre, the reason for their existence as a political party is to increase spending, increase taxes, and grow the government. That's what they do. They are who we thought they were, to quote Dennis Green, the football coach, famously years ago. So given the opportunity with an election coming up, with their power perhaps slipping away, they were going to get this done, and now they have. It's still not, it's a formality, but that's still not through the House. You never know. It's it's a slim, slim margin in the House, but I think they will probably get it through. Party line again, maybe one or two defectors, but not many. They walk the plank. It's what they do over there. They walk the plank, whether it's Obamacare. If you've got this big opportunity to grow the government, tax and spend, ideally all three at once, they go for it. And if it costs them in an election, so be it. It was worth the incremental gain ideologically. And that's what they've done here. And when it officially is over and Biden signs it, it then becomes the job of Republicans to explain to voters why this was such a bad idea and why we cannot afford any more of this from a Democrat-dominated government in Washington, D.C. It will take one house flipping red to put an end to a lot of this. It would be better to flip both houses. I think both are possible. But November is imminent and November is urgent. We're still in the doldrums of the summer. A lot of people haven't tuned in. We're going to start to get an even clearer picture of this election cycle and the dynamics in September and early October. But for now, 
it looks like Republicans are still on track to at least win back the House. And boy, did what just happened in Washington, D.C., does that not remind us in stark relief the stakes in November? Because they'll keep doing this stuff if they still have the power. Now, we'll get into a lot of the details, as I mentioned, with Brian Riedel, our guest, in the next hour. But I want to start with just the piece on the IRS, which I addressed today on Fox News Channel this morning with Dana. Just the IRS piece to me is frightening and alarming. What the Democrats have proposed and now passed out of the Senate is a doubling of the size of the IRS. They are doubling the size of the IRS. Think about that. America's favorite government agency, the entire purpose of which is to separate you from your money that you've earned. The Democrats say in order to spend a bunch of this money on Green New Deal stuff and climate stuff and health care stuff, we need some revenues so we can at least pretend that this is going to cut the deficit. It probably won't happen for years, but we have to make the math work on paper. And so they have chalked up hundreds of billions of dollars to enhanced enforcement. So they are doubling the size of the IRS to extract money out of American taxpayers to then finance, at least on paper, this new spending binge. $79.6 billion. The added cash is expected to go toward hiring 87,000 new IRS agents, roughly doubling the agency's size. 87,000 new IRS agents, in addition to the nearly 80,000 they already have. Now, they talk about billionaires a lot on the left. Oh, these billionaires. Got to crack down and hold accountable the billionaires, a fair share. There are fewer than 1,000 billionaires in America. But apparently they feel like it's super important for us to have, what, 160, 170,000 IRS agents. And they swear, don't worry, it's not for you. It's for other people. It's for the very rich people. That's it. And those bad corporations, that's it. Certainly not you in your family, in your small business. Don't you worry, pat on the head. Except that's not the way that it works. In fact, audits disproportionately harm middle and lower income people who don't have all the fancy lawyers and accountants to get around this stuff. And there have been studies that show, and I've seen former and current IRS agents on social media saying, oh, yeah, we know how this works. And pretending like this was not going to touch or impact middle or working class people is an absolute joke. Of course it is. The House Ways and Means Committee Republicans, led by Kevin Brady, who we have on this show a lot, they've been citing just a CBO analysis under this plan, which would, quote, on audit rates, talking about audit rates, they would, quote, rise for all taxpayers. And the conservative estimate is that the new policy would result in 1.2 million new audits per year with over 710,000 of those 1.2 million falling on taxpayers making $75,000 or less. Now, what the Democrats will tell you is this is all a right-wing lie. They're trying to scare you about the IRS. I mean, I don't really know 
how much spin is required. They're doubling the size of the IRS, folks. That's what this is, doubling it, hiring 87,000 new agents and auditors and all these people to come rummaging through your tax returns, through your paperwork, through the cushions of your couch to make your life a living hell. And what the Democrats say is, no, no, that's not true. This bill is not going to impact anyone making $400,000 or less. There'll be no higher rates of audits for those folks. That's just a right-wing invention. And then very dutifully, their friends, their allies at the IRS, because the Democrats and the IRS are like peas in a pot. Remember the whole targeting scandal of conservative groups with the Democrats defending the IRS at every turn? They are allies for obvious reasons. The IRS bureaucrats came out and said, oh, yeah, no, 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 we're, don't worry. Uh, what, what's President Biden's promise, $400,000? Oh, yeah, we're not going to do that. We're going to keep President Biden's promise. And by the way, the government agency, the IRS, it's not their job to keep some campaign promise by a president who's already violated that promise many times over in office. They are just saying that. So then the media can fact check Republicans who warn that what's going to happen is going to happen. They say, no, that is not true. Look at the IRS saying we're not going to do that. Well, should they be believed? You can just viscerally perhaps say no. We're not going to trust the Democratic Party and the IRS to stand by a talking point. But I think there was a. An episode over the course of the weekend, a vote, a vote on this very question that should put to rest the doubts about this. If you are gullible enough to believe the Democrats and the IRS, wait till you hear about the vote that was cast, which I will describe and play you some audio. Spoiler alert. They're lying to you. We'll prove it. As soon as we come back, it's the Guy Benson Show. We are just getting started on this Monday. Please stay tuned. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. So right before the break, I told you that the Democrats and their allies at the IRS and many of the media fact checkers are all saying, oh, don't worry. Doubling the size of the IRS in this tax and spend bill from the Democrats, that's not going to affect any normal Americans. This is only just about the the bad corporations and the super, super wealthy. Don't you worry. And Republicans who are telling you otherwise, they're just deceiving you and trying to scare you to score political points. So Senator Mike Crapo from Idaho, a Republican, he said, "Okay, interesting. If that's your position, if you're telling us, don't worry, there'll be no new adverse impact on any American working for wages less than, what, $400,000 a year, all the way down through, you know, the middle class, the working class. If none of those people have anything to fear from this bill, let's just enshrine that in the bill. Let's amend it to make sure that these new IRS auditors and agents aren't going to come after people in that age range. If you if that's the promise and you're calling us liars, let's just put it in the bill. 
because the the verbiage in the bill itself talks about intent. Nothing in the section is intended to increase taxes on any taxpayer or small business with a taxable income below $400,000. That's in the Democrats' bill that passed. This weaselly, wiggle, meaningless phrase in terms of having teeth, nothing in this section is intended to increase. Well, if it does, well, oops, that's not our intent. That means nothing. This is like a gumdrops provision. It is just totally useless. And what the Republicans said was, okay, let's change the term is intended to and just put the word shall. Nothing in this section shall increase, meaning it's not allowed. Let's put it in the bill. Let's put teeth behind your promise. And Senator Crapo described his amendment in Cut 29. We also know that the Congressional Budget Office will score that, showing that there is no way to accomplish the objectives of this bill unless you stop, unless you audit the middle class. My bill simply puts in some teeth behind what is admitted by everyone to be the intention of the legislation, to say that none of the new IRS funding may be used to audit those earning below 400000 If my amendment is not adopted, billions in taxes will be squeezed out of taxpayers earning below $400,000, according to the CBO, including middle-income workers and small businesses. All right, so pretty straightforward stuff. You guys claim you don't intend to do this. You're not going to hurt any of these people with this turbocharged IRS on steroids. None of that roid rage will come at the middle class or the working class. Let's put it in the bill in black and white, prohibiting that from happening. How's that for a deal? And guess what happened? They held a vote on that amendment, and it failed exactly along party lines, 50-50. Every Republican voted yes to try to keep this supposed promise, the Democrats' promise, which is not true. And every single Senate Democrat voted no. They want you to believe that 87,000 new IRS agents doubling the agency won't affect you. But when they had the chance to actually vote on that promise and make it real, they all voted no. Maggie Hassan in New Hampshire voted no. Catherine Cortez Masto in Nevada voted no. Mark Kelly in Arizona voted no. Raphael Warnock in Georgia voted no. Michael Bennett in Colorado voted no, just to pick five states at random. They all voted no. The promise means nothing. This massive new IRS is coming for you, and they've admitted it with their votes. Some more points on this when we come back. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We are back on the Guy Benson Show. A few more thoughts on this IRS monstrosity in the Democrats' bill that they've passed out of the Senate over the weekend. It happened yesterday. Kicked over to the House. They'll almost certainly pass it there, although it's close. They don't have much margin for error. Biden wants to sign it into law as soon as possible. 
And there's a lot to dislike. There's a lot of destructive, harmful provisions in this law. And we'll get into more of them with Brian Riedel in the next hour. And we've talked about them on this show. We talked about it heavily last week in our coverage. But I'm focusing specifically on the IRS because this is a lasting enforcement arm of big, intrusive government that they are doubling in size. While gaslighting you and trying to pretend that it won't affect you and only just sort of like mythical bad people out there who are super rich, so don't you worry. And as we've already described, they were able to vote on that. That's their promise. That's their assurance. And Republicans forced to vote on it. And every Democrat voted no. They voted not to keep their promise. Because the promise is not worth the paper it's printed on. That is by design. Of course, a bunch of the revenue that they plan to raise from this new army of IRS agents will come from middle class and working class people. Of course, that's what's always happened in the past and will continue to happen at a greater level now. There'll be so many more people at the IRS working to take more of your money into the government's coffers to spend on God knows what. Now, a a few more points before we move on to other subjects. Do you remember the name John Koskinen? Does that ring a bell at all? If you're a political nerd who's been paying attention to the news cycle now for the better part of a decade, you might remember the name John Koskinen. He was, under President Obama, the IRS commissioner, the chief of the IRS. And in the immediate aftermath of that whole political targeting scandal, and it's sort of crazy the amount of revisionism that's still out there now about what happened. People on the left will tell you it never happened, or the IRS were going after right-wing organizations and Tea Party groups for audits and harassment for political reasons. That happened. They admitted it. And there are a bunch of progressives and liars in the media who will now sort of airbrush that away and say that never really happened and they were doing it to both sides and this is sort of another right-wing myth. No, it's not. The IRS was going to get caught, so they leaked in a speech that they had done this. They apologized for it. They admitted, they apologized, and they paid legal settlements out to right-wing organizations. And yet there are some people who will tell you today with a straight face that that never happened and it was all a figment of your imagination and it was debunked. No. Follow the money. They admitted, apologized, and paid restitution. It happened. And Republicans were obviously furious. There were hearings on Capitol Hill. Koskinen, the public face beyond Lois Lerner, who, by the way, I read, retired with a full government pension, no accountability ever. She was the uh, the brain behind that whole operation. But Koskinen was the public face of the IRS in a lot of these hearings because she wouldn't show up and testify. And you might remember him as sort of like bald-headed guy, older guy, very smarmy, extremely arrogant, would not apologize for anything, combative with the Republicans, basically bleep you. A very IRS approach to life, actually. And he was not going to give an inch. So he was this sort of partisan gladiator, ripping Republicans, just sort of confirming everything you think about the IRS. And really helping me make my point that the IRS and the Democrats 
are on the same team when push comes to shove. They're like the enforcement arm of the Democratic Party. And in that case, they were doing it in a terrible, illegal way. And Koskinen was having none of it, would not apologize, and was just like dead behind the eyes. I, I, I could not stand him. Anyway, he has been beating the drum. This is what he would do. Not only would he not apologize for the malfeasance, he was demanding that it was actually the fault of Republicans because there's not enough funding for the IRS. And so what really needs to happen, the punishment for the IRS needs to be more funding. U.S. taxpayers had to give them more money so they could be better at taking taxpayers' money from them. That was sort of the roundabout, the sort of the circular argument that he made. There is perhaps no bigger advocate in America for increasing funding to the IRS than John Koskinen. Now, why do I mention him? Why do I go down memory lane? Why bring up the 2013 scandal, the targeting scandal, and all of that? Well, because John Koskinen was interviewed by the New York Times about the Democrats' bill that they just passed out of the Senate in which they're allocating 80 billion new dollars to the IRS to double its size and to hire 87,000 new agents that they tell you won't hurt you. Don't you worry, except we've established that's not true. Let me just read to you from this New York Times coverage. This is as sympathetic as you're going to get, New York Times. John Koskinen is the interview subject, Mr. Fund the IRS. Mr. We need more money at the IRS. Here's what the story says. Koskinen, who served as IRS commissioner under Presidents Barack Obama and Donald Trump, said that he thought the $80 billion being proposed by the Biden administration might be too much. That is putting it very lightly. Let me keep reading. The suggestion was surprising coming from someone who lamented loudly that the agency was being starved when when he was in charge. Quote, I'm not sure you'd be able to efficiently use that much money, Mr. Koskinen said in an interview. That's a lot of money. Mr. Koskinen said he thought an extra $25 billion over a decade would be sufficient. So here is the guy who was the ultimate cheerleader champion for giving more money to the IRS, which he led during the whole big kerfuffle. And it was, you know, it was right to be a big issue. It was outrageous what the IRS did. His solution was we need more money in the IRS coffers to do our job more ruthlessly, more efficiently. And even this guy looks at what the Democrats have done here and he's like, whoa, what? what? 80, 80 billion. That's a lot of money. He looks and he understands the books of the IRS. He knows what he thinks they should be able to do. He understands what their operations look like, what their operating budget might look like. And he's like, you know, 25 billion would be good. 25 billion. And the Democrats are like, nah, let's uh, triple that and a little bit more. Let's more than triple that. Here you go. And even this guy. Like, I'm not really sure you could even use that much money effectively or efficiently. It's amazing. The Democrats are so fanatically committed to this tax and spend bill, which relies on extracting nickels and dimes from millions of Americans 
that they want to make sure that they have a massive new army of auditors to come after you. They are so committed to that that they are throwing $80 billion at the IRS where the longtime chief of the IRS is admitting we would have no idea what to do with that much money. He's saying we need less than a third. And this is someone who I think is wrong and bad and not someone I would ever want in charge of the IRS again. He is far too excited about their power and increasing it. But even he is saying we could probably use less than a third. Beyond that, it's just it's just too much. You couldn't even spend that properly. And the Democrats don't care. They are shoveling more than triple what is needed. So the IRS will just be swimming in money to find ways to come after your money. I think that is such a devastating indictment because it's one thing to have a Republican senator railing against the IRS or some conservative activist screaming about the IRS. And by the way, they're probably right. Or, you know, uh, let's say a conservative talk show host on Fox News, hypothetically, railing and raging against the IRS and their runaway powers and the abuses of government and how intrusive they are and all of that. You know, do you know anyone like that who might do that? And you might say, well, that's because ideologically they're committed to lower taxes and reigning in the scope of government. So, of course, expanding the IRS, let alone doubling it, is something that they're going to hate. This is someone in John Koskinen who is on the opposite side of that debate. He is a full-blown, full-throated advocate for a bigger, more powerful, more intrusive IRS. And even he is saying, this is this is crazy. I'm putting words in his mouth, but in a very boring, bureaucratic way, he said, this is crazy. He said, we need this amount. The Democrats are doing more than triple that dollar amount. It's a huge amount of money, and I don't know how we could even spend it. This is the chief of the IRS for years. In court, they would call this an admission against interest. I think that would be even more persuasive, perhaps, than anything I could say or any conservative could argue, just reading you the words of John Koskinen himself. One more point on the IRS. Senator Ben Cardin, who's a Democrat from Delaware, Biden's home state, check that, he's from Maryland, I believe. Cardin was on Fox News Sunday with Mike Emanuel, And Emanuel was asking him about this huge expansion of the IRS. And listen to the answer from this Democratic senator in Cut 27. Can you understand how 87,000 new IRS agents would scare the heck out of millions of Americans? Millions of Americans aren't going to be impacted by that other than getting better service from the IRS, having their (laughs) telephone answered, getting the questions they need in order to comply with our tax laws. The auditing is going to be uh, focused on those of high income, the large corporations, etc. So uh, there's no reason to be fearful. And if you have paid your taxes and if you comply with our laws, you should want to make sure everyone else does that. Uh Uh-huh. So he says millions of Americans, i.e. you, are not going to be impacted by the doubling of the size of the IRS. Just think about what they're asking you to believe. Clear out all the specifics. Forget all the particulars that I'm giving you to back up my point. Just does that make any sense? 
oh, yeah, we're doubling the size of the IRS, but it's not going to impact you at all. Who believes that? That's his point that he gets out first. Then he says, this is just about getting better service. Like when you call the, call the number, they, they answered the phone quickly. Oh, they're, they're just adding $80 billion to the IRS to improve customer service. All those 87,000 new agents and auditors, it's just, you know, so they can direct your phone call. Your call is very important to us at the IRS, and it will be answered in the order in which it was received. That's basically what he's saying this is going to be for, a better customer interface. <laughs> That's why they need 87,000 new agents and auditors. Come on. Then he says this is about the higher income people in the businesses, right? So don't be fearful if you're not those rich people, except we've already dealt with that, haven't we, this hour? The Democrats were given a chance to vote on that question to actually protect people making $400,000 or less and small businesses below that income threshold so they don't get disproportionately impacted by this so their audit rates don't go up. The Republicans proposed that amendment and every Democrat voted no and killed it, including Ben Cardin, who's out there making this argument. Right. They just want to keep telling you the lie. And when they have a chance to unlie their own lie. They line up unanimously and vote that opportunity down and kill the provision. And then last but not least, he says, and if you paid your taxes, you comply with our laws, you got nothing to worry about. This is the type of justification for government power extensions on a whole host of issues that should be terrifying to everyone. It's like, oh, well, if you if you aren't hiding anything, you've got nothing to fear. Oh, we want to come in and search your house without a warrant. Oh, well, why could you possibly object? If you're not hiding anything in there, that's illegal. You've got nothing to fear. Is that something that you would accept? This assumes the good intentions of the government. It also betrays, I think, this total, I'll I'll be nice and kind and call it naivete. I would probably say more accurately that it's dishonesty. But this overall sense, this notion that you have nothing to fear from the IRS unless you're a tax cheat. Have you ever met the IRS? Have any of these people ever met the IRS? I know many people personally who are honest, upstanding, taxpaying citizens who have been targeted with an audit for whatever reason, and it has turned their lives upside down and made it a living hell for months on end. Because that's how the IRS is. It's like a very unpleasant exam in your posterior, but for your finances from the government with the opportunity to fine you and put you in prison unless every little tiny thing is in order and you can prove it all. The idea that if you're just, you know, if you're not a criminal or a tax cheat, you've got nothing to fear from the IRS is absolutely nonsense. Gaslighting doesn't even cover this stuff. Oh, yeah, 87,000, we're doubling the size. Not for you, don't worry. Well, we won't vote to keep that promise, but don't you worry, it'll be fine. And if you, if you just pay your taxes, you have nothing to fear from the IRS. That's doubling. Okay. 
If you want to believe that, if you do believe that, then by all means vote for the Democrats and reward them for this in November. If you are skeptical, let's say, then you have a different choice to make in November. And November is coming soon. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. This is horrific when you think about uh, what uh, the governor uh, is doing, the governor of Texas, uh, after a month of traveling across the border, placing on the bus with no direction to come here uh, to New York. It's the Guy Benson Show. That's Eric Adams, the Democratic mayor of New York City, a sanctuary city, I thought, decrying the state of Texas and Governor Abbott for sending busloads of migrants now to New York City as well, in addition to Washington, D.C., and he called it there horrific. He also called it unimaginable what Texas is doing. And I just don't understand. If you're a sanctuary city, you should, like, send us more. Please, we need to protect these migrants from federal enforcement, such that it even exists anymore under Biden. Instead, he's got this very kind of weird bipolar reaction to this tactic by the governors of Texas and Arizona. And he's very mad about it, but in a way that's incoherent. I talked about it on TV this morning. I will expand on this thought tomorrow, I think. I want to really dig in to the thought process behind Eric Adams and his rhetoric. I think that uh, there's much left to be desired about the logic, if you can call it that. I'll have a lot more to say on immigration tomorrow on this front. Governor Brian Kemp of Georgia is next. Stay here. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A brand new hour here on The Guy Benson Show, our second of three every weekday, 3 to 6 Eastern, right here. GuyBensonShow.com for all of the information that you need related to the program, including our free on-demand podcast every day when the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com. You can follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show. Fox News alert as we get rolling here. With the Dow closing roughly flat, but slightly up, 28 points in the green Ending the day at 32,831. Joining us now is Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, a Republican who is up for re-election in November. And, Governor, it's great to have you back. Hey, thanks for having me on, Guy. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to you. And I know we spoke after your primary win, and it wasn't just a win. It was a blowout trouncing. You sailed to renomination despite a lot of efforts to unseat you, including from former President Donald Trump, who recruited and endorsed someone else. And you prevailed by a very big margin. I bring that up because I saw a quote from President Trump. He was at CPAC in Dallas Fox News Digital caught up with him and asked if they would consider, he and his operation, would consider endorsing you for re-election despite all of the disagreement uh, over the last two years or so. And he did not rule it out. He said, we'll be looking at everything. So that sounded like a maybe, which is uh, different than his tone about you 
in the recent past. If the president were to come around and offer his endorsement, is that something that you would welcome? Hey, look, I want everybody's endorsement going into this November 8th election. That's what I said after the primary. It was time for all Republicans to unite and really all Georgians to unite against, you know, Stacey Abrams, who scares a lot of people. She's being funded by the likes of George Soros and California donors and New York donors trying to have their way with our state. And that's what I'm seeing around the state is all Republicans are uniting. But even people in the middle are worried about how extreme Stacey Abrams is and where she would take our state. And they want to keep Georgia moving in the direction that it has been with good opportunity, no matter what your zip code or your neighborhood. And uh, that's what we're working hard to do. Yeah. And the thing that's interesting about an election cycle these days in particular with social media and everything else, it's like everything is happening at light speed. So something that happened not that long ago can feel like a distant memory because you're constantly on to the next thing and the next controversy. I just want to linger, though, on something that she said. I know you've reacted to it, including on this show, but my guess is you're probably not going to let her forget this one. She gave public statements back in the spring about the state of Georgia. Cut 25. Here's what she said. I am tired of hearing about being the best state in the country to do business, but we are the worst state in the country to live. The worst state in the country to live. That's what she called Georgia, the state that she wants to lead. She also said after her so-called voter suppression lies were totally blown up by record turnout in the primaries, where it was the opposite of suppression, she had to say, oh, well, massive increases in turnout do not disprove suppression, which I think is a really tough sell. It's just it's it's a ridiculous, preposterous thing to try to justify all the fear mongering and dishonesty that she's been a part of on that issue. You just look at those two back to back, Governor, her disparaging the state as the worst state in the country to live in and then with her number one signature issue, voter suppression, just completely imploding because of reality that disproves what she was saying to try to scare people. Uh, I feel like those are two pretty powerful strikes against her. Well, I would I would agree with that. Obviously, I feel like Georgia is the best state to live, work and raise our families in. And I'm trying to keep it that way. And certainly, you know, that argument that she's making on voting in Georgia is a laughable guy, as you well know. Uh, it's easy to vote and hard to cheat here. I've said that from day one. That's what our Elections Integrity Act did. And for her to say that's not the case after we just had record prime, uh, record turnout in the primary for both Republicans and Democrats. And Democrats. Is really, yeah, it's, it's really quite laughable. And it's quite laughable because people are realizing that she's a hypocrite. You know, she said she wanted to defund the police. Now she's wanting to double up the pay raise that I've already given to law enforcement. She said she, you know, she said uh, voter ID was suppressive when we had it in our bill and we're doing our Elections Integrity Act. Yet when Joe Manchin introduced it in D.C., she was for it. You know, she said that the suspending the gas tax here was bad policy in Georgia And we were doing that to help people fight through the disastrous domestic energy policy that the Biden White House and Stacey Abrams, who helped him get elected, supported. And now she's against that. So I don't think Georgians really trust Stacey Abrams. And that's what we're, you know, we're not going to let people forget that. But we're also going to tell them, look, you know, I'm the guy that's been fighting for you, whether you voted for me or not. I'm fighting hard to give you opportunity in our state and help you fight through the disastrous policies that caused us 
40-year high inflation, the disaster at the gas pump, the disaster at the border. And now, you know, over the weekend, you had this administration and every single Democrat in the United States Senate vote to increase spending and, uh, you know, increase taxes on hardworking Americans that Joe Biden promised he wouldn't do. And they're celebrating that. It's it's uh, a long, strange trip that we're on with this administration. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And And on that point about the sort of flip-flops and the cravenness of Stacey Abrams and her political posturing when the president and the vice president came to your state to talk about her central issue, this whole voter suppression canard. And Biden went down there and called anyone who disagrees with him racists and segregationists and Confederates and all that stuff. Stacey Abrams, even though that is right up her alley, because he's so unpopular in your state, she said she had a scheduling conflict and couldn't show up, even though it was her party's president in her state on her signature issue. I still think that that is uh, quite interesting, and I think it speaks volumes about where the president stands in your state and how she is hoping that people don't link her to the outcomes of the Democratic Party nationally that you just referenced, Governor. I know you're not running against Senator Warnock. That's Herschel Walker's job on the Senate side. But Raphael Warnock was one of every single Democrat in the U.S. Senate. All of them, all 50 of them voted in favor of this big tax increase, this huge spending increase in the middle of inflation, the doubling of the IRS with 87,000 new agents and auditors getting added on. Warnock voted for that. That's the Biden plan. He's eager to sign that into legislation. From your perspective, how does that impact Georgians? Well, this is the thing, guy. You know, Stacey Abrams takes credit for getting Joe Biden elected. She worked very hard for him. He gives her that credit. She auditioned to be his vice presidential candidate, so she's certainly embracing the policies of this administration. Yeah, embracing the policies of this administration. And and Senator Warnock's voted with Biden 96% of the time. So, you know, they need to own what they've created here in this country, which is 40-year high inflation, the disaster at the gas pump, and the disaster at the border. And now they're raising taxes on hardworking Georgians and on our manufacturers that we've worked literally the last decade to onshore and bring back good manufacturer, good-paying manufacturing jobs to Georgia. And the other thing they're doing with that bill is they're picking winners and losers. And that's, uh, you know, if you're a union-backed employment base and – you know, or up in the Northeast or in other states, this is beneficial to you. But if you're one of our automobile suppliers or other factories down here in Georgia, you get penalized from them. You know, it's we have about a minute left, Governor. When you look at one of the bright spots in this economy, it's job creation and employment. And then you look at where those jobs are happening and where they're being made and where people are moving. And it's a bunch of red states with the opposite policies of the Biden administration. They try to take credit for that stuff. But it's states like Georgia actually leading on that. Why is that happening? 30 seconds. Well, it is. It's the Republican governors that have done that. You know, the nation just got back to full employment like like was out there before the pandemic. Guy in Georgia, we did that in December of 2021. So what, nine months ago we did that. That's the difference. We were doing it back then. They're just now catching up nine months later, and our state's better for that. Yep. Leading versus following sound economic policies versus the opposite. That is the choice, a big part of the choice coming up in November, including down in Georgia. Governor, always great to have you here. We'll have you back again. 
Sounds good. Thanks a lot. Good afternoon. It's the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. We just spoke with Governor Kemp out of Georgia. His opponent in the general election, of course, is Stacey Abrams, who fancies herself the incumbent because she was an election truther and denier last time she lost in 2018. That made her a big superstar on the left because they like certain election lies over there and not others. That's sort of how that works. We're against all the election lies and conspiracies here. We try to be consistent on The Guy Benson Show, unlike so many people who like to preen and posture and look down their nose and wag their finger out of a misplaced sense of superiority and self-righteousness. In any case, Stacey Abrams gave an interview to Yahoo News, and she was asked about a number of topics, including abortion. And she, like basically all of her party at this point, the elected members, not the rank-and-file voters, a lot of them are actually fairly nuanced on abortion if you look at polling. But to get ahead in the Democratic Party today, you have to be an absolute fanatic because the base demands it, the donors demand it. The special interest groups demand it. And so Stacey Abrams, of course, as a heroine of the left, is right there. And she was asked about this. Here's her answer. Listen to cut 24. Abortion is a medical decision. It is medical care. It is what helps a woman who's had a miscarriage actually navigate that space. It's technically a spontaneous abortion. It is what happens in an ectopic pregnancy. But it is also a decision that women make because they are not ready to be mothers. It is a medical decision. And while your faith tradition may tell you that you personally do not want to make that choice, it is not my right as a Christian to impose that value system on someone else because the value that should overhang everything is the right to make our own decisions, the free will that the God I believe in gave us. Okay. Let's pick this apart piece by piece. I think it is so telling that she starts by referencing a miscarriage in an ectopic pregnancy situation. Miscarriages are not abortions. An abortion is the deliberate, willful act of ending an unborn life, terminating a pregnancy, making that decision. A miscarriage is that happening through natural causes. It's not the same thing. I think the fact that they believe clearly that they have to blur these lines, given the amount of time they spend talking about miscarriages and ectopic pregnancies, which on that front, those are non-viable pregnancies. Those are not elective abortions. That is a procedure to save a woman's life because a non-viable pregnancy and an ectopic pregnancy is a danger to the mother's life. And all of the abortion restrictions in America have exceptions for situations like that. So, again, I think it's actually quite revealing about how confident they are in their overall position and their very fanatical position that they feel the need, and Abrams does it here, to begin the argument with two absolute red herrings designed to distract and conflate issues. That's how she opens Then she gets to it's a medical decision about whether a woman is ready to be a mother. And even if you have a religious belief that says it's wrong, you can't impose your value on anyone else. And a point that we've made on this show a number of times is that basically every law in existence is the imposition of values. And a lot of those values come from some sort of religious or moral underpinning. 
We impose values all the time. The left does it. The right does it. It's not just about personal choice and what you want to do with your free will. And I think saying that this is really God's plan is a pretty gross way of framing this issue, given what's at stake, a human life. But someone can use their free will granted to them by God to do all sorts of terrible things. And no one would argue, and I'm not making this exact comparison, but just listen to the logic here. You couldn't say, oh, well, I'm not going to speak out against rape. We shouldn't have laws against rape because that's someone's choice whether or not to commit one. If you don't like rape, don't do one. And as Christians, we shouldn't impose anti-rape laws because we all have free will to make our own decisions. The obvious response to that is, well, no, hang on. You are violating someone else. You are committing violence against another human being. Your free will, your choices are not so free or personal once they start violating the rights of somebody else. So, too, is the argument against abortion. There's another party that is obviously harmed when their life is ended. Now, you might say, I don't believe that an unborn child or a fetus really is a human life until fill in the blank. And this is where it's a really difficult debate. And I understand there are shades of gray and nuance. Some people draw a bright line at conception. Some people draw a bright line at birth. Not many. That is a very extreme position. We have a fully formed, pain-capable baby at that point. And the idea that you could legally kill that person in an elective way as a, quote, medical decision for no medical reason— I think, is grotesque. It is beyond ghoulish. But then there's a lot of other Americans who say the line should be somewhere else, perhaps after the first trimester. Six weeks is the heartbeat. Although they tell us you shouldn't use the term heartbeat because that's too humanizing. A lot of the abortion debate is about dehumanizing the baby. But let's say there's the heartbeat line, there's the first trimester line, there's the 15-week line or 14 weeks. That's where we see a lot of Europe sort of in that 6- to 15-week range. There's the 20-week line, the viability line that's kept moving forward and forward in the pregnancy thanks to science and technology somewhere around 20 weeks. And you find a lot of Americans willing to say at some point, even if the child is still not yet born, It's a life worthy of legal protection. And the wantedness of that life shouldn't impact the value of the life. I think that's how we can have difficult but reasonable conversations about the issue of abortion that I come at generally from a pro-life perspective. But just boiling it down to it's a medical decision about miscarriages and ectopic pregnancies and free will and decisions blessed by God – I think that that is a whole whirlwind of words that really does not withstand scrutiny. And Stacey Abrams, what she is trying to wrap in the veil of her faith, what she's actually defending is abortion on demand, paid for by tax dollars up until the moment of birth. That is her position. And if she wants to say that is what aligns with her Christian faith, I guess that's her business. But it is way out of step with the American people, and I would venture to say it is also deeply, perhaps even deeper, out of step with the people of Georgia. But that's who's on the ballot in November. 
and I hope she has the same outcome that she did last time, but by a greater margin, because maybe this time it'll be so large that she can't possibly pretend that she won. The Guy Benson Show continues after this break. Brian Riedel breaking down the Democrats' huge tax and spend binge in detail. That's next. You don't want to miss it. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Just past the halfway point on today's episode of The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website, and the podcast, of course, is free every day. With me now is Brian Riedel, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, a longtime budget staffer and expert on Capitol Hill. Brian, always good to have you. Glad to be here. Thank you. Well, we talked about the IRS components of this Democratic bill that they've passed, which was called the Inflation Reduction Act. And now that it has cleared the tough hurdle in the Senate, the media is finally letting us all know it's actually about other things. It's about the climate. It's about health care. It seems like the whole reduction of inflation thing has fallen by the wayside very quickly, even though that's literally what they decided to name the bill for obvious political reasons not really fooling almost anyone. There was a poll I saw last week. Only 12% of voters actually believe this thing will reduce inflation. And apparently one of the people who is in the large majority, dubious of that title, is an unlikely character. This was over the weekend on the Senate floor. Cut four. Listen to this. I want to take a moment to say a few words about the so-called Inflation Reduction Act that we are debating Uh, this evening. And I say so-called, by the way, because according to the CBO and other economic organizations who have studied this bill, it will, in fact, have a minimal impact on inflation. That, of course, is the voice of Bernie Sanders, the socialist from Vermont, who, of course, voted in favor of the bill ultimately because it raises taxes, increases spending, grows the government. He's for all of those things. But at least he had this useful moment of clarity, Brian, saying, look, uh, the experts actually say this thing really doesn't have an impact on inflation, but we're calling it that anyway. I think that's pretty telling and revealing coming from that source. Yeah, I mean, everybody knows this is not going to reduce inflation. Uh, The Penn Wharton budget model came out first right off the bat and said no real effect on inflation. Congressional Budget Office jumped in, said no effect on inflation, at least in the first two years. This is in part because there's no real deficit reduction in this bill. They were hanging much of the inflation reduction hat on on the idea that it reduces the deficit. Well, in the first couple years, it might actually increase the deficit when the CBO numbers come out. And so there's no real deficit reduction. There are are a lot of taxes that are going to be passed on to consumers through higher prices and through workers violating the tax pledge. But Inflation Reduction Act was really just branding. And the only person who really seems to believe it is Joe Manchin, who was who used to say the Penn Wharton inflation numbers were right until this situation, when now he suddenly says uh, that all the inflation estimates are wrong. Yeah, bless his heart. Now, here's the thing, Brian. You just mentioned CBO and their numbers and the impact on deficits and that sort of thing. You said when they come out. I was under the impression that they had scored this thing. But then I saw some tweets in the last day or two saying actually what they put forward is still preliminary and incomplete. 
Is that right? They didn't get an actual score on this thing before they voted on it? There was a preliminary score before they made a, a changes to it with Senator Cinema and changes on the Senate floor. So what they voted on and passed did not have a full Senate, a full CBO score yet. It was not updated. Um, it, it might be bigger. It might be smaller. I'm guessing it's probably going to be smaller deficit reduction. But no, they were in a hurry to get out of town. They weren't going to wait for no score. Yeah. And on the deficit point, which is tied inextricably for the reason that you just laid out a moment ago to inflation and so-called inflation reduction, the deficit reduction that they're talking about is really in the out years. I saw Philip Klein wrote a piece. We talked about it last week. He estimates that about 93 percent. He's just reporting what CBO found in their initial estimate. Ninety three percent of the deficit reduction comes after 2026, which seems so ludicrous. And the White House, their own favorite projection shows that the alleged inflation reduction that might come won't happen for nine years. And even in that case, it would be a fraction of one percentage point. This is the stuff they're hanging their hat on. And I guess just counting on people not to know the difference, not to care, the media to spin it. But this is really thin gruel that they're presenting to the American people as hypothetical future wins to try to sell and ram this thing through. And at least on the ramming, it seems to have worked. This is what they've been doing for decades. Uh, They passed these bills promising major deficit reduction where all the benefits happen now and the deficit reduction maybe happens many years down the road. Well, in this case, much of the deficit reduction comes from extending some ACA Obamacare subsidies for three years and then assuming that Congress is actually going to let them expire at the end of three years. Nobody Nobody thinks they're actually going to let that stuff expire, which means uh, the deficit reduction even in the out years is going to be smaller than people believe. And it's especially galling when the entire argument is based on short-term inflation reduction, mostly through short-term deficit reduction. That's been the entire argument. And yet the CBO scores uh, will reveal that it might actually increase the deficits in the first couple years, and they've already said it's not going to reduce inflation. It's, It's galling. Well, it was, I believe, JCT that found that inflation could go up slightly under this bill in the first couple of years. I just saw a graphic on MSNBC, and I think if we're playing by their rules, we have to call this state television because they put up a bunch of propaganda all day on this big win for the Democrats. And they had a graphic up when they had Senator Bennett on, who's an endangered Senate Democrat, so they were there to boost him. And the Chiron said GOP claims bill will increase inflation. Experts say that's not true. I'm paraphrasing. But actually, the nonpartisan congressional experts say that that, in fact, could be true for the first couple of years, which is the teeth of inflation. The problem is right now, Brian. And that's why, you know, Chris Coons, another Democrat from Delaware, he was on ABC yesterday and he admitted, well, we may not see big impacts on inflation in the first or second year. And it's like, well, when do you think the problem is happening? Inflation is a current acute problem for the American people. And if you guys are now admitting that your Inflation Reduction Act won't really do anything and might actually go in the wrong direction on inflation for the first couple of years, that seems like a very big self-indictment. Yeah, I mean, think of this 
as a inflation is a wildfire going through the economy, and Congress passing wildfire legislation that says we'll we'll begin uh, bringing in more firefighters in two years. The, the fire is happening now. Two years from now, the fire will have burned itself out, likely with a huge line of damage in, in its wake. You know, this is well, this well, is Brian, just just to jump in that. That's a very good analogy that you made. I'll give you another one, which is less hypothetical and something that the Democrats literally just did last year in 2021, the so-called Rescue Act, which basically all the experts now agree was hugely inflationary and very reckless. But mm-hmm. they said this was absolutely crucial for the economy and it's going to put us back to work and it's going to not impact inflation at all. Everything's going to be great. And one of the big ticket items in that spending spree, just this slush fund of nearly $2 trillion, was a bunch of education funding, they called it, to keep schools open and reopen schools. And the vast majority of that money did not even start to get spent until 2024, 2025, 2026, when we'd be long past the pandemic. These are the games that they play. And I guess the lesson is when you play stupid games – in my view, which is electing Democrats into power, you win stupid prizes like this. It's what they do. It's what should be expected when they have control of the government. And I just think a lot of voters, when they went into the voting booth in 2020, they pulled the lever for a lot of reasons. Not for this, but this is what they're getting. And I hope that voters learn a lesson here. Sometimes the memory needs to be refreshed, unfortunately, over and over again about what unified democratic governance actually looks like. Yeah, it's the same timing games as when during a recession or, or what we call the American Rescue Plan, they'll create all of these new spending programs, unemployment benefits, child credit, student loan moratoriums, and say, this is just a short-term emergency policy. Don't worry, it's just short-term. And then when the economy recovers and it expires, they say, don't let the Republicans take away your new benefits. It's the same. It, these are the timing games. They say, they, they say that they're putting out a short-term problem. They're solving a short-term problem. And Often the spending doesn't even begin for a couple of years, and lo and behold, they will never let it expire again. And that's why, we're, that's why the student loan moratorium is continuing. And you're right. When you elect Democrats, they're going to spend money and they're going to raise taxes. That's what they're put on this earth to do. And they're going to say what it takes to, to get it through. They're going to tell you it's temporary. They're going to tell you it's dealing with inflation or recession. But these are all intended to be permanent expansions of government. Yep. And if you call something temporary – And then the emergency supposedly justifying the temporary action then passes, and some people try to claw back some of the temporary spending or whatever. That is immediately called cuts, draconian, hurting people, always disproportionately impacting people of color, women, children. This is what they do. It's how they argue, and they played the same game on election reforms, where if you just want to go back to how elections went – before the 2020 pandemic, and even enshrine some of the pandemic stuff, just not in as widespread a way, they're calling that voter suppression. This is absolutely the racket that they run. They're doing it here on this bill as well. Brian, as I mentioned earlier in the show, I got into the IRS provisions. We've talked about the tax implications, the inflation problems, and sort of the shell game that they're playing here. What are some of the other elements of this bill if it passes the house as expected and gets signed into law that you think people need to be aware of because the democrats are out there saying 
a bunch of nonsense about inflation and deficits and that sort of thing, which is, I think, misleading at best. But they're also saying, oh, look, it's going to bring down prescription drugs. It's going to make the biggest investments we've ever had for the climate. So it's going to save our planet. This is the way that they're going to market it. What do you say to that? And what else do people need to know about what's in this thing? Well, you know, you mentioned the IRS agents. That's going to be the thing that most directs a lot, of, most affects a lot of people. Hiring 87,000 new IRS agents, you know, they say it's to go after billionaires. Well, there's, you don't need 87,000 agents to go after 800 billionaires. Uh, this is going to go all the way down the income ladder. And in fact, there was an amendment that would have limited the new audits to those earning over $400,000, and it got defeated because every Democrat voted against it. So that's, that's item one. There's also the, the, the minimum tax on corporations. People say, let corporations pay more taxes, you know, don't let them get off the hook. But Joint, tax on, Joint Committee on Taxation says this is going to be passed on to you through higher prices, lower wages, and a lower 401k. Even if you're not directly sending the check to the IRS, this will affect you as well. And in terms of the climate provisions, we have to be careful that we're not transitioning uh, to, to renewables faster than the costs can come down. Otherwise, you're going to see higher energy costs for people, and you're going to see a lot of dislocations in the economy um, that's going to cost a lot of families. That's, that's not exactly a free lunch either. Those are, are three of the things that I think people should watch out for right away. You know, when we have the debate about student loan forgiveness, is the way the Democrats like to frame it, it really does come down to asking American taxpayers, majority of whom did not go to college, and the vast majority of whom would not benefit from these provisions, to subsidize some handouts, basically, to disproportionately wealthier people. It is a transfer of wealth in a direction that is not progressive, as in fact it is regressive in a lot of ways. And people who didn't go to college or people who were responsible and went to affordable places and maybe denied themselves their dream school or who worked for years to pay off their student loans, those people all get shafted. And a certain group of you know, definitely sort of sweet spot Democratic constituents, they would benefit. There's also an element of that, a component of that, Brian, in this bill on some of the climate stuff where you can have families earning up to 300 grand a year, rich families, qualify for very generous subsidies to go buy electric vehicles Vehicles that average people absolutely could not afford, even with the tax subsidy, but some of these rich families probably could, and then they can pocket $7,500 toward that purchase. That is something that is in this bill, which I think, again, it's the Democrats always try to frame their legislation as win, win, win with no downsides for anyone, and they like to still kind of pretend that they're the party of the common man and the worker, but I think that that's pretty easily rebutted, at least with some specific details of what's inside this legislation. Yeah, I mean, essentially, there's electric vehicle subsidies that are basically a subsidy that's going to go to Tesla. It's a subsidy for the richest man in the world, Elon Musk. We are going to essentially pay people to buy his product, uh, which which is a giant transfer to him. Um, additionally, in terms of you're talking about... Um, you know, upper income people benefiting, some of the ACA subsidy extensions go to people earning over $300,000 a year. So you're going to get premium tax credits for Obamacare. Uh, if you're a family of four with the mom and dad age 51 and the kids age 20, 
according to the Congressional Budget Office, that hypothetical family can get uh, Obamacare subsidies up to $300,000 in income under this bill. So, I mean, they're, they're throwing money around right and left. And that would be bad enough, and I would say really bad policy under any circumstances. It seems truly insane to me during an era of rampant inflation, where we're at 40-year highs on inflation, and they're like, what we really need to do is spend even more, and they're doing it, and we should not be surprised. Ultimately, this is why their party exists, but we still have to fight back. We still have to educate people about what's in this thing, and I think the Democrats have really stepped on a few landmines politically here, and if the Republicans are smart and capable, they will make them pay in November for a number of these votes that they're casting on this legislation and beyond. Brian Riedel, we've got to leave it there for now. Senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, longtime budget wonk on Capitol Hill. Brian, always appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Guy. And we'll be right back after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. Politico reporting over the weekend that the Biden administration is planning to extend its COVID emergency declaration. I guess there is a battle internally over whether or not to do that, but they are leaning in the direction of doing it. So the emergency for the purposes of the federal government will continue because there's money attached to that. There's power attached to that. There's authority attached to that. And boy, it's hard to get a government to give that up. Meanwhile, this is a story from the Wall Street Journal. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Very interesting outcome where public health officials and the bureaucracy is saying, do this. And Americans, having lived through the last two plus years, are saying, no, thank you. Headline from the journal, most parents are saying no to COVID-19 vaccines for toddlers. More than a month after the shots became available, roughly 4 to 5% of children under 5 years old have received them. So it's been a month. You had the CDC out there and the FDA saying this is effective, this is safe, go get your kids vaccinated. They wanted to require these vaccines for a lot of kids a lot of different places. And in the youngest age group, so far 95 96% of kids are not vaccinated. Those parents saying, no thanks, we're not going there. For good reason. Young kids overwhelmingly are safe from COVID. And by the way, in the 5 to 11-year-old range, that's been available for months, the vaccine has. And well under half of kids in this country within that range, only 38% of 5 to 11-year-old Americans have gotten vaccinated against COVID. And I think that is a rational and reasonable decision based on data by their parents. I think it also underscores the huge credibility problem that the public health bureaucracy has created for itself. And boy, have they earned it. The Guy Benson Show continues with our final hour coming up. Howie Kurtz on the media is straight ahead. It's five o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show, our final hour of three, between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. Thank you for listening. Thanks for being here. I'm Guy Benson, your host. 
Our website is GuyBensonShow.com, as always. The podcast is free, as always, on demand. Follow us on social media, at Guy Benson Show on Twitter and on Instagram. And also a reminder that this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is so good. Very delicious. I hope that you'll check it out if you're 21-plus only. Always drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com is their website, really expanding across the map. And you can find out where they are sold near you or order online, TheLongDrink.com. Joining us now is Howard Kurtz, host of Fox News Channel's Media Buzz every Sunday morning at 11 Eastern, host of the podcast Media Buzz Meter. You can follow him on Twitter at Howard Kurtz. And Howie, as usual, it is always good to have you here. Hello, Guy. I am just wondering if you, as a longtime student of the news media, can you, if you just really focus with your subtle antenna, can you perhaps detect just the slightest amount of boosterism from the news media for the Democrats and President Biden in the last few weeks? It seems like everyone is tripping over themselves to write about the Biden comeback and all these Democratic victories. And I don't know, it just kind of feels like a lot of people are awfully eager to race together towards a narrative. Well, I don't think there's any question the media have been rooting for Biden and Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema to find the votes to pass, as now it's obvious it will pass, this climate change and corporate taxes and health care bill. Um, at the same time, you know, they, they get to use reconciliation. Always seems unfair to the party out of power when it's shoved down your throat, but the Republicans did the same thing with the Trump tax cuts about five years ago. Uh, Although with much less th- cheerleading, right? The media, the media was sort of yeah, part well, of the opposition sure. on that. No, that was all about uh, tax breaks for the rich. Yes, exactly. No, it's just like that's the thing, Howie. I get it. This is how it works. When you have a majority, you do things, and the other party doesn't like it. I think what's annoying to someone like me is just watching. It's not even – I was using the word subtle very sarcastically in my first question to you. It is so brazen and blatantly obvious when there is a controversial thing that the Democrats are doing, the media – are waving the blue pom-poms, and when it's the Republicans doing something controversial or even something that they decide is controversial, even if the polling is much better than the, you know, the consensus in Washington and New York might be, it is very much like you know, opposition, acrimonious, hostile coverage. That, that's just sort of how it goes. Whining about it doesn't really help, but also just acknowledging that it's there is also just part of, I think, accurately analyzing the situation. Well, I'm going to offer you a slightly different perspective, which is, I think, by any objective standard, and you may disagree on the substance of it, that Joe Biden, after months and months and months of abysmal ratings and his own party deserting him on whether he deserves a second time, a term, excuse me, uh, you know, has uh, pulled off a number of legislative wins with bipartisan support. There's the CHIPS bill to make us more competitive with China. There's the thing that John Stewart was the chief cheerleader for, and that's helping ailing veterans who've been exposed to burn pits and other toxins. There was that gun safety compromise. There was the taking out of the leader of al-Qaeda. And so to do that in a couple of weeks, I think, puts a lot of wins on the board for Joe Biden. But, and here's the caveat, I don't think it changes the midterms where inflation is still the top issue. A lot of the stuff, particularly in this massive climate change bill, it will kick in you know, two years down the road and elections are won or lost in the short term. And I think still 
even though the, the White House is like, oh, well, now he can definitely run because he's got all these accomplishments to brag about, uh, I still think most Democrats and Democratic lawmakers uh, don't want him to be the nominee in 2024. Uh, and I think this recent burst, good as it might be from the White House point of view, isn't really changing that. I think that's probably true. I think what you just said is accurate. I'm glad that you made the distinction, and I think it's an important one, Howie, that some of these big victories that are being chalked up to the Democrats are, in fact, bipartisan victories and could not have passed without substantial Republican support. And I've been watching MSNBC all day here in the studio. They're on mute. I've got all four networks up here. MSNBC every hour has been putting up these full screen graphics about the Democratic victories. And you go through the list that they're offering and it is the gun safety and school safety and mental health bill that John Cornyn and Chris Murphy got together on. It is the PACT Act that you mentioned on veterans health care. It is the CHIPS bill on competing with China. That's how supporters would frame it. Those are all on the list. There was another graphic I saw on MSNBC that also had the approval of Sweden and Finland to join NATO as a Democratic victory. They're calling them all Democratic victories with these little check marks next to them, like the Democrats have done these things. And I would say, Howie, just without any spin put on it, if you want to look at exclusively Democratic victories, they've had two really big ones legislatively. One was the American Rescue Plan, which most people admit now was a big mistake, but it spent a lot of money, so that's what the Democrats were for last year. And now this new one, the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, which – I think is a total misnomer for reasons that we've discussed multiple times on the show. Those two are Democratic victories that they did without the Republicans in pursuit of a partisan ideological agenda. All the other items that I just mentioned had 64, 65, I believe 86 and 95 votes, if I'm off the top of my head getting that correct. But you had roughly two-thirds support all the way up to 95 percent support broad bipartisan coalitions for a number of these things, but they are being framed, at least on certain networks, as Democratic victories, as if the Republicans don't exist. And it feels kind of like it's a lose-lose proposition always for the Republicans, Howie, which is if the Republicans are blocking something, it's obstructionism. And when Republicans decide to go along with bipartisanship under a Democratic majority, then it's a Democratic win. And if that's the way that these things are marketed to the public, and look, that's the job of Democrats to make their points, and the Republicans can make their points to the public. But if the media is casting their lot in over and over again with one side and sort of amplifying this argument where it's never a good thing for the Republicans and it's either the Republicans being bad or the Democrats winning, I think that those same people really have no standing to wring their hands about a lack of bipartisanship because they discourage it with this type of coverage. That's my view. That's a fair point. And I do think that every Republican, uh, starting with Mitch McConnell, who voted for these major pieces of legislation in substantial numbers, deserves a lot of credit. But for Biden, you know, people, a lot of people in his own party said, you know, he's so not only is he too old, but he's such a throwback. He thinks you can work across the aisle. He always campaigned on the idea that, well, he was a senator for 112 years and therefore, you know, he can get some kind of cooperation. And so I do think that plays to his strength as well. But again, you have people like there's these two Democrats running in New York against each other in a single district, 
uh, Jerry uh, Nadler and, and Carolyn Maloney. And when asked, would you support Biden in 2024? One of them said, uh, too early to talk about that. And the other one said, well, I don't think he's running. And then I had to backtrack and say, well, I still don't think he's running. If he does run, I'd support him. You know, I that says to me really that weird. they uh, have severe doubts. They could still consider him an albatross. Now, if he shoots up in the polls 10 points, then you'll see a lot more of these comeback stories that you're seeing every five minutes on MSNBC. Yeah, although ABC, they put out their news poll yesterday, brand new, and the president is still in the 30s on job approval and really languishing on the economy and inflation, which are the number one issue set in this election and will remain the case for the next number of months. And, Howie, look, your point is well taken. Joe Biden sort of campaigned as this uniting moderate guy who knows how to work across the aisle. He has not governed that way until, I think, by default, they were cornered. Their approach, their our way or the highway approach of partisanship was failing at every turn. So they decided, okay, maybe we can work across the aisle a little bit. And Republicans said, okay, some of the stuff we're on board for, they are finally on some pieces doing what he said he would do as a candidate. And that's fine. If you want to say these are bipartisan victories for Biden, I think that's a fair way to put it. And you could say, like I just did, you can nitpick or dispute or say, well, he was backed into this corner. He didn't really govern this way. It was a bait and switch when he first got in. And now he's looking down the barrel of being in the minority in at least one house, his party. And so he's starting to do the things that he said he would and fulfill the promise. So you can say it's maybe giving him too much credit to call it a Biden bipartisan victory. But at least that would be more accurate than Democratic victories, which is how some of this stuff, much of it is being hailed by the media, including votes that had 85 plus votes in the United States Senate, which I think is just really silly. Now, you mentioned, Howie, the 2024 drama among Democrats. I couldn't help but notice this. A commentator or pundit over at CNN just admitted something. And this was someone who had really poo-pooed like most of the media and played down or ignored the Hunter Biden saga, which was just deemed to be disinformation before the 2020 election. It was subverted as a story. It was suppressed on social media. It was treated as nothing by the media except maybe a lie that needed some rebutting. But this CNN pundit, who's one of their quasi-prominent people over there, he is now admitting that the Hunter Biden turmoil might force Biden out of the race in 2024, calling it, quote, a real problem and, quote, not just a right-wing media story. I mean, Howie, this is very, very, very late to the party, and it really seems to come at a time where a lot of progressives have kind of decided that they're over Joe Biden anyway. So I guess the disinformation, dangerous thing that needed to be censored is now real and a problem and not just a right-wing media story just in the nick of time for the 2024 Biden discussion. That seems awfully convenient slash suspicious to me. I mean, you could have talked about it being a, quote, right-wing media story maybe in 2020 when it did fall fall to uh, the New York Post and other conservative-leaning outlets to say, hey, you know, we've got these emails and laptop and all that. But, you know, a year later, conveniently, the New York Times authenticates it, the Washington Post authenticates it. There's a federal investigation with grand jury uh, taking testimony in Delaware. It may be that Hunter Biden ends up not getting indicted. It may well be that he does get indicted. Uh, but to go back to that old canard about, oh, this was just – you know, Russian disinformation pushed by the right wing uh, smells a little desperate to me. Oh, well, I mean, for sure. And what they're finally doing in this case 
is admitting that it isn't those things, right? It was all of those terrible things, sort of like the permission slip for a lot of people to not pay attention to the story. It's just this made-up, crazy, weird, right-wing fantasy fairy tale deal. And then Biden gets elected. Then they start seeing sort of the headlights coming right at them with the problems for Hunter Biden. Plus, they're not that excited about Biden 2024. They've moved on. They want to get to their next political crush and their next political person to boost and support. And so then it's like, you know, now it can be told, actually, it's not this right wing thing. This could be a serious problem for him. And it could force him out of the 2024 campaign. It's just the heel turn. With no real new information, the information was there. They just chose to ignore it. And then at some point they looked at each other and said, oh, gosh, maybe this is authentic. Maybe this is legitimate. Maybe we should cover it. And now almost like it might be a plus to them because they're tired of Joe Biden, who's, you know, too moderate anyway and too old. And they want to get the uh, excitement machine revved up for someone else. I just think it's worth pointing out the timeline of the way that they have covered that story or not. Based on political convenience, political dynamics, with very little new information, they're just sort of going back and saying, "Oh yeah, the stuff that these other outlets reported uh, looks true. It looks true, and this uh, this federal investigation is ramping up further and could be a real threat politically to the Biden administration." I just find it, again, very illustrative of the way the media so often covers stories or doesn't based on their political or their perceived political interests of their allies in the Democratic Party. Howie, the Alex Jones trial and the jury awards of many millions of dollars for the Newtown families in Sandy Hook, uh, a big media story for sure. He's a huge fringe but huge figure in sort of alternative media. Your thoughts on what happened over the last couple of days on that front? Well, first of all, about time that this maestro of misinformation was held accountable by a jury in the Sandy Hook parents' lawsuit. And uh, $49 million, he may even have that amount of money, given what we're learning about the finances of his company, uh, I think sends a very strong message that if you lie and, in effect, turn life into a living hell for these poor parents who lost their young kids in something that Alex Jones until now was not willing to admit was a massacre. It was a false flag operation. It was uh, it was staged. Uh, I, I can't think of anybody more deserving. And I think this puts a real hole in his ship, but also raises the question of perjury, because under oath in this uh, trial, when his lawyers apparently mistakenly uh, or maybe they don't like the guy, you know, sent over his entire digital file to the opposing team's lawyers. And uh, we learned that when he said he had no texts about Sandy Hook, that was wrong. When he said he never used email, that was wrong. He used email to communicate with his lawyers and on and on and on. He could face the possibility of uh, a criminal perjury charge, depending on what to do. Now, I have read the uh, theory saying, you know what? Well, Alex Jones may be crazy, but uh, there are a lot of people who are crazy in politics. Or Alex Jones may be crazy, but he's been, he's been enabled by the people who buy this merchandise from his store and who subscribe to InfoWars. And I think there might be something to that. Politics has become a very coarse and lying business. Uh, you see it every day in the media, where we can't agree on a common set of facts. But there's a special place for Alex Jones and the heinous thing that he has done. It has taken 10 years to actually hold the guy accountable. $45 million and counting, and as you pointed out, there might be more coming on the criminal side. We shall see. Howie Kurtz, host of Media Buzz every Sunday morning on Fox News Channel at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. His podcast, in the meantime, is Media Buzz Meter. You can check that out at foxnewspodcasts.com. Howie, thanks so much. Great to be with you. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour resumes after this short break. 
Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Welcome back to the Guy Benson Show. It's the happy hour. Thanks for listening. One of the most cringe-worthy things that we see in our politics, it's not partisan necessarily, but it's politicians trying to pretend to be normal people for social media when they are clearly just not normal people and don't really understand how anything works or how average people function. The latest installment of this is a tweet, a photo, from Governor Kathy Hochul in New York. She's the Democratic governor. And she tweets out, this was yesterday, a picture of herself with this awkward smile. The caption is, great day for a barbecue, New York, exclamation point, with some emojis, a sun, a hot dog, a burger. And here's just your average Kathy grilling up a storm wherever she is. She looks so authentic as someone who really knows how to work a grill as she is holding a spatula, like a, sort of like one of those grill spatulas, with a totally raw hamburger on it. As she's kind of offering it toward the camera, she doesn't really want to be holding this thing at all, it would seem. The burger is nowhere ready to be flipped if that's what she's doing. And she's also wearing a pristine white dress and is standing pretty far away from the grill. This woman is not grilling. I'm not sure she has ever used a grill in her life. No one wears that grilling a bunch of meat for friends. But I guess the brain trust at the Hochul campaign is like, oh, yeah, let's uh, let's be a woman of the people and let's be relatable. Put her in the white dress. Give her the little spatula thing. Yeah, hold up that raw burger there, Kath. This is great. But people are going to love this. And they put it out there voluntarily. So authentic. You can almost imagine her as soon as the photo is over, just like dropping the thing and being like, ew, okay, let's go get some sushi. That's what the look is here. That's the vibe I'm getting from this photograph. Grill master Kathy Hochul. We got a break. We'll be right back. It's The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Earlier in today's edition of The Guy Benson Show, we welcome back to the program Governor Brian Kemp, the 83rd and sitting governor of the great state of Georgia. For all of our listeners down in the Peach State, especially listening on Extra. And we had a lot to talk about, including his reelection campaign against Stacey Abrams. Here's part of my conversation with Governor Kemp. If the president were to come around and offer his endorsement, is that something that you would welcome? Hey, look, I want everybody's endorsement going into this November 8th election. That's what I said after the primary. It was time for all Republicans to unite and really all Georgians to unite against, you know, Stacey Abrams, who scares a lot of people. She's being funded by the likes of George Soros and California donors and New York donors trying to have their way with our state. And that's what I'm seeing around the state is all Republicans are uniting. But even people in the middle are worried about how extreme Stacey Abrams is and where she would take our state. And they want to keep Georgia moving in the direction that it has been with good opportunity, no matter what your zip code or your neighborhood. And uh, that's what we're working hard to do. Yeah. And the thing that's interesting about an election cycle these days, in particular with social media and everything else, it's like everything is happening at light speed. So something that happened not that long ago can feel like a distant memory because you're constantly on to the next thing and the next controversy. I just want to linger, though, on something that she said. I know you've reacted to it, including on this show, but my guess is you're probably not going to let her forget this one. 
She gave public statements back in the spring about the state of Georgia. Cut 25. Here's what she said. I am tired of hearing about being the best state in the country to do business when we are the worst state in the country to live. The worst state in the country to live. That's what she called Georgia, the state that she wants to lead. She also said after her so-called voter suppression lies were totally blown up by record turnout in the primaries where it was the opposite of suppression. She had to say, oh, well, massive increases in turnout do not disprove suppression, which I think is a really tough sell. It's just it's it's a ridiculous, preposterous thing to try to justify all the fear mongering and dishonesty that she's been a part of on that issue. But you just look at those two back to back governor, her disparaging the state as the worst state in the country to live in. And then with her number one signature issue, voter suppression, just completely imploding because of reality that disproves what she was saying to try to scare people. Uh, I feel like those are two pretty powerful strikes against her. Well, I would I would agree with that. Obviously, I feel like Georgia's the best state to live, work and raise our families in. And I'm trying to keep it that way. And certainly. You know, that argument that she's making on voting in Georgia is a laughable guy, as you well know. Uh, It's easy to vote and hard to cheat here. I've said that from day one. That's what our Elections Integrity Act did. And for her to say that's not the case after we just had record record turnout in the primary for both Republicans and Democrats. And Democrats. Yeah, it's, it's really quite laughable. And it's quite laughable because people are realizing that she's a hypocrite. You know, she's said she wanted to defund the police. Now she's wanting to double up the pay raise that I've already given to law enforcement. She said she, you know, she said uh, voter ID was suppressive when we had it in our bill and we're doing our Elections Integrity Act. Yet when Joe Manchin introduced it in D.C., she was for it. You know, she said that the suspending the gas tax here was bad policy in Georgia. And we were doing that to help people fight through the disastrous domestic energy policy that the Biden White House and Stacey Abrams, who helped him get elected, supported, and now she's against that. So I don't think Georgians really trust Stacey Abrams, and that's what we're, you know, we're not going to let people forget that, but we're also going to tell them, look, you know, I'm the guy that's been fighting for you, whether you voted for me or not. I'm fighting hard to give you opportunity in our state and help you fight through the disastrous policies that caused us 40-year high inflation, the disaster at the gas pump, the disaster at the border. And now, you know, over the weekend, you had this administration and every single Democrat in the United States Senate vote to increase spending and, uh, you know, increase taxes on hardworking Americans that Joe Biden promised he wouldn't do. And they're celebrating that. It's it's uh, a long, strange trip that we're on with this administration. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. And and on that point about the sort of flip flops and the cravenness of Stacey Abrams and her political posturing. When the president and the vice president came to your state to talk about her central issue, this whole voter suppression canard, and Biden went down there and called anyone who disagrees with him racist and segregationists and Confederates and all that stuff. Stacey Abrams, even though that is right up her alley because he's so unpopular in your state, she said she had a scheduling conflict and couldn't show up, even though it was her party's president in her state on her signature issue. I still think that that is uh, quite interesting. 
My full interview with Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia, is posted online at GuyBensonShow.com. You can also check out our podcast. Every day, the entire show is on demand for free. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, producer Christine was going to tell us about whether or not she actually was able to find the fortune teller. The exciting conclusion to that drama, plus a few other details when we return. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Monday. GuyBensonShow.com, our website, podcast, always free, every day on demand. And if you're listening on the broadcast, that is a hot jam by Lady Gaga. We've had some sprinkled in throughout the program. As I've mentioned before, we are going to the Gaga concert tonight at Nationals Park in Washington, D.C. And I'm actually like almost unreasonably excited about it. She, from what I hear, puts on an amazing show. She can really sing. She's very talented. She's not my favorite ever, but she's had a lot of hits. So I'm stoked for this. Now, we were looking up some information online about when she actually comes on stage because the concert starts at a certain time, and then usually the main act doesn't show up for at least an hour. So we were trying to gather some intel. If we were going to be running at all behind schedule, what's really the drop-dead time where you have to be there to not miss her, which is the point of the concert? And we got that information. The tricky thing was it came on some websites that are tracking this concert tour very closely, and they're offering you the set list from these concerts that she's putting on. And I guess a lot of the set lists are at least somewhat similar I have not looked at them. I'm trying to avert my eyes from that stuff. I don't really want to know. I know there are some people who religiously look that up. They like to know what's coming or what's probably coming. They want to sort of study what the band or the artist has done on a tour, what they're playing, what they're not playing, what would be a special treat if they do play it. For me, given my level of fandom, which is to say – moderate with Lady Gaga. I just want to be surprised the whole time. I don't want to know anything. There are a few songs that I hope she plays, and I'd imagine that she will. Like, you play the hits. She's a pop star. I don't think I'm going to be disappointed, but I know this is something that people sometimes have different approaches on, where some people want to do as much intel gathering as possible. And for me, in this case, I don't want it. I know Adam was the same way. He was trying to scroll through and get to the information saying, like, no, I don't want to see what she's singing and when. Anyway, we will talk to you about it tomorrow. I'll give you my impressions of the concert. I will do my best not to lose my voice singing along or cheering. I I think there's a very low likelihood of that. I'll behave myself, enjoy myself, and report back tomorrow. In the meantime, we have to report back with producer Christine. Because on Friday, she was blaming me for the fact that she did not manage to find the fortune teller slash psychic that supposedly had a secret message from her late father. Christine had been accosted in Times Square by a psychic who wanted her money 
in exchange for this alleged message from her dad. And Christine had said, if I find you tomorrow, this was on Wednesday, I will agree to do this. So they agreed. Christine had cash on hand. I told Christine she should take a different route through Times Square because if it was meant to be and it was in the stars, it would happen. And, of course, it didn't happen. So Christine did not take this as not a sign. That's the thing. You read into everything that could be a sign and everything else is completely dismissed or blamed on someone or something else. In this case, me. So then she said on Friday's show, I'm going to go my normal route and see if she can, you know, find, you know, whoever, Miss Cleo 2.0 in the middle of Times Square on Friday. And so because I didn't get any sort of update over the weekend after Friday evening, Christine, am I correct to assume that it was another swing and a miss? I do not like to admit that you were right and I was wrong, but she wasn't there. Like the whole setup wasn't there. So part of me feels like I lost my chance and I should have just sat down with her Wednesday. Part of me still believes that you're at fault because you told me to go a different way on Thursday. And the last part of me just feels defeated because I really believed, I really believed her. I, I There was something inside mm. of me that came over my yeah, body, a, I told you. and I Yeah, I that totally Times Square it. psychic. If, if, if you can't trust a Times Square psychic, who can you trust, in <laughs> fairness? So I'm, I'm sorry that it was such a disappointing outcome. The good news is you saved money. And you did not have to then have new BS taxing your mind over the weekend. That was made up anyway. So I, I think overall, net-net, this is actually a big win for Cookie. Even though she may not know it or realize it, I think that perhaps – well, I won't even say that a lesson has been learned. I don't think a lesson has been learned here. But at least unnecessary wasted cash has been averted for now – now, let's talk about setting fire to money also, because you were telling us that there's a new update in your vacuum cleaner chronicles. And so re- remind people where this stood. You just bought a new vacuum again, making it the fourth, I believe, the fourth vacuum cleaner in your house, including some very expensive, trendy ones. Now you've gotten yet another one. Now what? W- what's just happened? Well, let's just take it back to the fact that you said house. I have a two-bedroom apartment, and I have four vacuums. Had, had four vacuums. I, drumroll please, now have only one vacuum. We have cleared the deck on vacuums. We are one vacuum home and I'm going to I'm going to give you Guy Benson as well as your audience Probably the best piece of household cleaning advice ever. This is not to say, though, if Dyson or somebody with a big name wants to, you know, support the show, that we will give it another thought. But right now, the Bissell Zing with a Z is only $60 on Amazon, and it's life-changing. Even my husband said, probably the best vacuum we've ever had. Life-changing, a vacuum Life cleaner changing. called mm-hmm. called a Zing. The mm-hmm. Bissell Zing has changed your life. Yes. Okay. It makes me really happy. And honestly, my husband and my daughter, it's, it's user-friendly. My daughter uses it. I mean, 
this is even a cleaner home than we already thought we had. Okay, so this begs the question, you had four. You're Uh so excited about the new one. You're down to just one. What happened to the other three? They went to vacuum heaven, just where Carousel probably is. You sent them to the same Staten Island garbage dump where Carousel and her remains ended up? Well, I don't know exactly where uh, the plastic goes, but... Yes. No, they are no longer in this apartment. They have been put to rest. Okay, but because I was about to congratulate you. I was about to congratulate you for simplifying your life in some way. But am I correct in stating that the other three vacuum cleaners that you had might not be your preference, but they were still functioning vacuum cleaners? They worked? Yes, they worked. Um, I think the biggest regret was probably throwing away the Dyson if I had to. The, the other two were just – one was just super old. The other one just didn't work But still very functioning. Well. So you, you had functioning. three functioning vacuum cleaners, including a Dyson, that yeah. you paid a lot of money for and you just threw them away? You didn't even give them to friends or post them on the internet for cheap so you could make a little bit of money back? You just put them in the garbage? Yeah, well, now you're making me feel bad. I, who was I going to give this to? You know, like who I don't know. If you could be like, "Hey, I've got a, I've got a perfectly functioning Dyson vacuum cleaner. I now live in an apartment. Do you want it?" I think a lot of people would say, "Yes, thank you." Can I bring you a bottle of wine as a thank you, or take you to dinner, or something? Hmm, we didn't, we didn't think of it that way because honestly, the Dyson really it, it works, but it's not great, and it constantly got clogged. And it was very frustrating to us. So, yeah, I mean, oh, now you're making me feel bad. But they are all in vacuum heaven along with my pony. And may they rest in peace, all of them. Wow. At Mm. the uh, landfill, some landfill probably in Staten Island. We've never been able to fully confirm that in terms of carousel. But our investigation is ongoing here at the Guy Benson Show. Maybe we could get Judge Janine on that or something to really get to the bottom of it, a whole Fox Nation special when, Christine, you're finally brought to justice for that. But I'm just surprised, given the frugality, I think it's fair to say, of Bobby, that he didn't put up any fight in just throwing into the garbage three household appliances that were working. I think I just, like, broke him on the vacuum front. He was just so over it and he couldn't believe because remember on amazon prime day i ordered it and he unordered it and then he couldn't believe that i got it by him and ordered it and it was on a little bit of back order but then it finally came this week um i think he was just broken yeah <laughs> he was a broken, and, and the thing is you could have just stopped because you said i think i broke him on that or on vacuums <laughs> you could have just stopped at broken or like i broke him <laughs> Period. I think that is probably <laughs> what has happened in this relationship. And Bobby, if you disagree, you can send a note. But that's kind of the general sense that I get from a distance as an unlicensed and uncompensated therapist uh, for your wife, producer Christine. That's you know that's sort of my read on things, and I don't need any tarot cards for that reading. It's just right there for all of us to see and hear. All right, Christine. I keep trying to get to this new get-rich-quick scheme that you've dreamed up? 
apparently first on the list, throw away expensive household appliances into the garbage. That's the first step to getting rich. The second step is a new plan that you have. It has nothing to do with buying a racehorse. I think we should just stay away from all things equine for obvious reasons with you. This is a new plan that you have, but we're out of time. So we'll have to stow this one in the memory bank for later in the week because we're going to doing the Gaga review, the concert review tomorrow. But I do want to talk about this new plan that you've got, this scheme, perhaps Wednesday or Thursday. So, Wyatt, maybe make a note of that uh, in your binder here because you never get anything past YY. we got to go. I'm so excited for this concert. We'll let you know how it is tomorrow. In the meantime, thank you very much for listening. We will talk to you back here on the radio, same time, same place. Have a great night. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.